Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mamluks. I'm Mahin and I'm joined today by my co-host Sim. We're really excited for today's guest because she's someone we became aware of about a year ago, started following her work. She is Noor Jude, who is the Director of Admissions and Communications at Morningside Montessori School in New York City. But we're not here to talk to Noor about education or the Montessori curriculum or anything of that sort. We're actually here to talk to her about a lot of taboo topics and her own uh, spiritual background and journey because we first became aware of Noor maybe about a year ago we were researching one of our potential guests a guy by the name of Nabil Aziz and we found that he was a guest on a show called Between Arabs and so we had a chance to listen to that show we saw it was pretty raw pretty raunchy just like how we like it and we just became subscribers, and, and we also found out that Noor had another good friend of ours, Daniel Hakikachu, on the show. Um, and just, you know, she was kind of doing a lot of the same work we were doing as far as approaching taboo or controversial topics within a Muslim community that people were too afraid of. So we thought it would, you know, it's, it's been a long time coming. We want to welcome Noor on. We probably should have done this a long time ago, but Noor, assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mamluks. Wa alaikum salam. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Yeah, so Sim and I, before we even, we're like, we, I know you don't have a show anymore, so we regret knowing, yeah. that's regretful to know that, but at the same time, we were fans of the Between yeah, Arabs project. We, we had like professional crushes on you, because you were, <laughs> you were able to do what we really wanted to do in terms of addressing all the different uh, topics that are, you know, taboo topics, and you did it in such an eloquent manner where you sounded like... You know Barbara Walters in her prime. You know much more intellect. Yeah, that, that, that's. I think we we agree that you are you're very uh, well spoken compared to us. We we're kind of like Neanderthals on our show. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe people use that against us, but like it's it, you know for you it was even if it's like someone talking to a British accent, you could disagree with them, but you still gotta like you know take their you know you know listen hear it out a little bit. Whereas, and I think that's something you definitely brought to the table and really uh, you know we're big fans of the work you were doing and talking about issues like polygamy and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, faith crises and I think the LGBT issue with Daniel and whatnot. Right. Uh, I was talking to some guys today, talking to some guys this morning and, uh, telling them like, Hey, we got a couple of shows today and told them about you. And some guy was like, yeah, she looks like, like your typical Arab feminist. And I'm like, uh, some of you guys here are probably more feminist than she is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you want to, if you want to go there, because like you, you guys have gotten triggered by stuff that doesn't trigger her. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. You, you know what I mean? So, uh, we'll, 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 we'll see how this, but I, I think uh, like a lot of the guys we've talked to in the community, they're real favorable, but let's, let's start with that. Do you think, have you gotten critiques from people in the community that, you know, you're just pandering to like this you know, masculine side of the Muslim community and, you know, as in, in, in that sense? Absolutely. I mean, I, I get criticism or I've gotten criticism from all angles. There, you know, are the folks who think that I'm being too apologetic to the quote unquote patriarchy or, you know, why am I giving a platform to folks like Daniel Haklikaju and Nabil Aziz? And then there are folks who, you know, think that similar to the guys in your WhatsApp group, I'm just another millennial feminist in hijab, 
you know, um, a social justice warrior who wants to talk about taboo and expose all of the Muslim community's dirty laundry. So there's criticism from both angles. Um, and, you know, we can we can talk about that in more specific detail uh, later on. Yeah. So um, I, I know your background, you uh, you're from a Syrian family. Um, you grew up like, what, on the East Coast, right? Yes. So my mom's side is from Syria and my father's side is from Palestine. Um, and I did grow up in New York City. I was born in Damascus, but I really didn't spend much time out in um, Syria. OK. Um, so talk to us a little bit about the Between Arabs project and like what kind of inspired that for you. Yeah. So, you know, Sim and I were talking just before the recording started. We um, actually began the Between Arabs project around the same time that you guys began the Madnam Luke's, um, which was in December 2015. And originally it started out as a blog. I was just trying to go. I had just gotten divorced and I was trying to make sense of the experience. And one of the things that struck me very poignantly was the stigma around divorce in the Muslim community. Um, and so I just started to put pen to paper. It was a cathartic process for me. And as I was chronicling my experience and the uh, details of that relationship, lots of people started to read it and repost it. And all of a sudden, it just kind of gathered a following. And I created a series out of it. It was called uh, My Semi-Arranged Marriage and What It Taught Me. Um, and Eventually, I realized there was a demand for these kinds of conversations, but I didn't have the time and the bandwidth to sit down and write, you know, well-polished pieces every single day. So I thought if I am standing behind a microphone, it might be a little bit more conducive in terms of time management. And alhamdulillah, it was. I was able to um, get or reach out to folks who are not really into reading blogs, but who are more than happy to listen to a podcast on their way to work. So that was helpful. And it just kind of grew from there. I started to connect with different people across the country and even across the globe. Um, and slowly but surely, we were able to start gathering a group of uh, writers and editors for the blog. And then just recently this year, I decided to pull the plug on the project. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to share more detail. I know there's a lot of people out there who are like, you know, I wrote an open letter saying these are the reasons why, but folks were still emailing me and, and calling me to find out some more detail and information. I guess it's the curiosity in everybody. Sure. We'll, we'll table that for now, but was your uh, divorce before or after your, uh, the phase where you went through atheism? My divorce took place. Play. So wh while I was married, I identified as an atheist. And then shortly after my divorce is when I had reverted officially. Okay. So when you got how long were you married for? About three years. And when so when you first got married, you were Muslim? Mm, no, culturally, but not really. Okay. Can you talk to us a little bit about how – so was your husband from an Arab background as well? Yes. Okay. So my husband um, or my ex-husband had he was Jordanian. He grew up in Jordan and he I guess like most folks out there, you grow up Muslim, you practice, you learn the faith. And then at some point you either continue or you just practice it on a cultural level. Right. So there's like adat or uh, mores and, and um, social codes of conduct that you practice that look 
Islamic, but it's really just cultural, right? So like lowering your gaze or um, saying salamu alaykum, alhamdulillah, uh, fasting during Ramadan, the conviction isn't really there, but you do it because you're in a society that is Muslim. And if you don't, there will be controversy. So that was kind of where he came from. But he was very liberal, very progressive, open-minded, you know, all of those terms that we like to use to describe people who adopt secular liberalism as their um, sort of way of life. And uh, once we were married, it became more evident to me that you know, he wasn't a practicing Muslim anyway. And the fact that he married me knowing that I wasn't a practicing Muslim was also enough to suggest that he didn't really care about that um, red flag number one. But, uh, you know, he, he, he was probably far more liberal than I was now that I can step back and reflect on that uh, experience a little bit more. Um, he definitely did not... Uh, he, he, he didn't care. He didn't care about the uh, tenets of Islam. And towards the tail end of our, our uh, marriage, he also started to sort of exhibit a lot of behaviors and um, voiced a lot of thoughts about his own crisis and being an atheist. Was that now, as you progressed through the marriage, were you starting to be like kind of gravitate back towards Islam near the end of the, your marriage? And is that why essentially the divorce happened, would you say? Or is it deeper than that? That's a good question. So my my transition back to Islam was a gradual thing. I began to open my heart and my mind up to the idea because I was very closed off to it. I didn't want to hear anything about religion. I didn't want to talk about it. I hated it. You know, your typical, like, angry... Uh, on the one hand, open-minded atheist, but you know, when you start talking about religion, it becomes completely closed-minded. That was me. Um, during my marriage, I started to uh, read the Quran and I started to study the Hadith a little bit more for myself and listen to Islamic lectures. My ex-husband had no idea that I was doing this and not that he would care anyway. Um, but definitely after the marriage ended is when I realized, you know, uh, sort of between myself that I had already started to believe before I realized I started to believe. And then it wasn't until December, no, not December, uh, the summer of 2015 when I officially said, okay, this is, I'm officially a Muslim. <clears throat> sure. So like regarding the divorce, um, we obviously it's a, something that even in our community, it's, I mean, I, I've heard people spit out figures that like, now, Muslim couples are even, there's a 50% divorce rate amongst Muslim couples. Um, and sometimes it's, and I think we, that's a subject we are going to broach with a future uh, guest in, in particular who is like involved in like marriage counseling and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, like from a, from the male perspective, like a lot of times what I've seen is that there's infidelity involved. You generally... Um, from the male side, but sometimes on the female side as well. I, I don't want to, you know, give the sisters a free pass here. But uh, um, like for you, is is there a specific other than the faith um, difference that eventually came about? Would you say there's any root cause, or was it an issue of you just think? Because sometimes yeah, I think people there, there were root causes. Okay. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk about it now or if you want to talk about Let's it. Let's just talk about it right now while we're on, while, okay. while we're on subject. So I'll give you sort of a backstory to this. Um, this morning, I shared a letter on Facebook 
uh, and it was written by a woman named Farah Kawsar, and she identifies as a voluntary matchmaker and a wife of a brilliant man. Um, her piece is entitled A Letter to All the 30-Plus Single Asian and Arab Guys. It's, it's a brilliant piece. It's pretty short. Go read it. Um, on a rhetorical level, it's very witty, and in terms of her actual argument, I think she nails it. And what she's arguing is that men of the South Asian and Arab communities who are over 30, who are looking to get married, really need to reflect on their expectations and they need to reconsider their demands. And she goes into a couple of vignettes and anecdotes and she shares that they're, by and large, the concern is that the women that they are meeting are too old for them, right? So we're talking about 30 and 40 and 50 year old men. You're not going to marry a 20 year old woman, generally speaking. Um, and that seems to be a point of dissatisfaction for these kinds of guys. So in my experience, when I got married, I was 25 years old and my then husband had turned 30. So there was a five uh, year difference between us, but it wasn't until I went through the marriage that I learned a very difficult lesson, which is that by and large, 30 plus year old Muslim men who are single and who abstain from premarital sex are very likely to engage in regular porn watching and masturbation. And there are countless studies available on the ill effects of this behavior, which I'm happy to share. Um, and it, be, it does become an addiction for many of these men. And we're talking about issues of erectile dysfunction. We're talking about unrealistic expectations, um, in the physical department. Um, and so what you find is, there's a real and serious issue that's facing these men that has really nothing to do with women's fertility, apart from the fact that there are scientific and alternative methods available to assist the small percentage of women who may actually fall in this category, who can't, you know, have children. What we really need to be paying attention to is the battle that our brothers are facing. And, you know, this is the first time that I'm mentioning this because I never talked about it through the Between Arabs project. So consider yourselves lucky. Um, but this issue was one of the breaking points that brought my marriage um, to an end. Um, and it's something that I was completely unaware of prior to getting married. It was something I had no exposure to, had no idea that it was even on the horizon. Um, but it wasn't until I was actually married that I learned that, you know, it does exist and that I, I had such a case on my hands. We're, we're talking about, like, the whole porn issue, which is mm -hmm. prevalent. Yeah, because I, I think it's... So it's not even just the Muslims that are aware of it. Non I was listening to a podcast. I think it was called Unmistakable Creative, um, you know, and they were talking about how porn, you know, if you if you start watching porn, it actually starts damaging various sexual um, tendencies you might even have. Like it's inherent. Like it just, and you cannot um, experience full sexual satisfaction. Um, yeah. in that sense. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah. but it, it, it kind of just creeps up on you in a sense. Cause I remember now back, like I, I'm in my mid thirties, right? So when I was a kid, we didn't have the internet and all that stuff, but you'd always have the kid bring in like, um, you know, his dad's like penthouse or playboy magazine to school when you're like at fifth grade and you're like, Oh, cool. Or you find something behind the <laughs> trash can somewhere that someone threw out or like r random mm -hmm. stashes of stuff. Um, that you look at, but now it, it's so accessible, and you know right. you can get it on your phone and, and all free. that kind of, and free. Yeah, I, I was funny because I was talking to my uh, one of my employees was telling me about like you know how him and his girlfriend, you know, when they need to get in a mood, they just like 
you know, pull up something on their phone. Yeah, that <laughs> well, blows my mind. My coworkers talk about that kind of stuff that, you know, whenever they want to get in the mood that they, this is the kind of stuff that them and their wives uh, do, you know, they just flip that on and I'm like, mm-hmm. what? Like, you're both in involved in this? And, you know, that just blew my mind, like. Yeah, like that. I I didn't. Ever I don't think I would even that. have the guts to mention to my <laughs> wife to like do that. <laughs> to like, hey, yeah, let's but, go. But I found out because uh, you know Sheikh Hammer on our show, he's a, a counselor for yeah. this, and he said that he's seen cases in our Muslim community where, you know, practicing Muslims. This is not like just people who are gone off the off the faith. These are practicing Muslims who are involved in this kind of stuff. He, he was kind of just like shrugging. When I was telling him this, and he's like, "Dude, Muslims are involved in this. Practicing Muslims," mm-hmm. and I, I was just blown away that that people do that. Well, you know, part of the reason I think is because um, I, I I don't know how your ex's backstory in Jordan. I'm assuming in Jordan, when you're in a Muslim country, it's still difficult to like just have um, just freewheeling interracial. I mean, in, interjet like relationship. Like it's it's casual dating a thing in Jordan these days, no. or. No, I mean, God knows, um, you know, after all of these wars have broken out in the Middle East, what's been going on with the influx of refugees, it's kind of chaotic. But by and large, I mean, in the 80s and 90s, no, it's still a conservative society whereby those casual relationships are far and few between. Most folks do not engage in premarital sex out there. Mm. Yeah, so I think when you compare the Muslim dynamic to the non-Muslims, they sometimes they're starting when they're they start da- I remember like my classmates in sixth grade started dating and some of them were having sex mm-hmm. in sixth grade. Yeah. You know, I was like I was like twelve like if you think about it, they're like twelve year old? Are you for real? <laughs> it's like a, yeah, it's like a little kid. It's a double edged sword for <laughs> Muslims in the West, right? It's a double edged sword because on the one hand, um, you know, getting married at a young age, which is how it used to be in the Muslim world, is not really an option. Or maybe it's starting to become a thing because a lot of the shiuch are advocating for it and saying, look, the alternative is they're going to screw up. You know, men and women can't abstain completely from, you know, sexual experiences up until the age of 30. So what's the alternative? Do you want your children to get married when they're in college and you you can support them through their relationship until they can stand on their own two feet? Or do you want to keep them, quote unquote, engaged for 10 years, assuming, you know, that you're going to turn the other cheek that uh, in terms of what they're doing behind closed doors? And then they're, you know, sinning left and right. So it's hard. Yeah. It's very difficult. We have a difficult situation. Um, and I don't I'm not I don't want to say that I have an answer to this. I'm not saying that there is an answer to this. But what is a reality, I think, for those of us who are in our 30s or late 20s and older is the expectations that men have of women by and large speaking about their physical appearances is so uh impractical and unrealistic because of the prevalence of you know pornography and the hypersexualization of women in our society and they even those who have had premarital sex sometimes they fall into that category as well, where they expect a porn star for a wife. And it's not realistic. It's not going to happen. And you see these marriages falling apart because of this. Yeah, um, I know from my own experience, uh, when I got married when I was 20, my wife was 19. And it, it really, you cannot do it without your parents. 
You, mm-hmm. I mean, your parents have to be there as a support structure because you're still so immature in everything that uh, marriage entails and you don't know how to handle conflict. And if it wasn't for my parents, uh, that we would have been divorced like so quickly, it would have been the quickest mm-hmm. marriage ever. But uh, I, but I still do encourage um, parents uh, to, to foster these relationships early if it's financially possible that they can encourage their their sons and daughters to get married early and and support them through that um but it's not for everyone i I, everyone has to make that call themselves but it's something definitely to consider because as the the years go on and when you know moving into your 20s and 30s and you know knowing male libido you're eventually going to crack somehow. I think mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's a lot of guys who are patient and they, they, they're they able to control it. And But we're, we're talking about the uh, the rule, not the exception, you know? Right. So, yeah, I mean, and porn, if you think about it, like if a guy's going to stay a virgin until he's like 30, I mean, what are the odds? He's, he's got to do, he's got to be doing something. So mm-hmm. maybe that's porn. And... I'm not here to give a justification for it, but would someone rather have someone who's watching porn or someone who's actually sleeping around? Right. Yeah. Well, that's well, what I mean, but <laughs> I don't know what the answer to this, well, you know, the, is other than like folks should be getting married sooner. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Sim, you mentioned like the guidance of your parents and your wife's parents, um, which is great. And that without it, you would have ended up divorced. But seriously, even 30 year olds can't, deal with conflict resolution and are divorcing anyway. So in some ways it becomes like arbitrary, age becomes arbitrary because it's not necessarily the case that your 30 plus year olds are much wiser and fit to deal with the marriage on their own as well. They've never lived with another person of the opposite sex where they have to compromise and, you know, figure out uh, things in the household. And it's new to 30 year olds as it is to 20 year olds. So, yeah, you know, I don't know that that argument about like, holding off for a later age is necessarily holding up as, as much as it once did. Yeah. And yeah, I can attest. I'm in my mid thirties. I've been married much a lot, uh, eight years. I've got two kids. And so my youngest is like three months old. So you know how, well, maybe you don't have any kids, right? No, I don't have any kids. Yeah. So, I mean, if you've ever been around like a three month old, they, you are at their mercy 24 7 right um so you know that obviously there's a stress there and with two kids now you have a four-year-old who's also like you know climbing on you while the three-month-old demands attention um you know yeah so even for someone who's in their mid-30s and has been married close to a decade it's still there's still a stress element there that you know like like that's why i agree i agree with that um so like back to the issue of uh infidelity um so sometimes you know I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, you know, maybe six months ago or so um, about uh, a divorce that happened due to infidelity. And I told him, like, listen, man, when we were single, so um, I became practicing fully probably in my early 20s. And I always felt like that I didn't mess around with, uh, you know, girls before that. A lot just looked out for me. My mother made dua. A lot looked out for me, kept me protected. So... In my early 20s, when I became practicing, I was pretty hard line as far as gender relations. I didn't really um, talk to girls unless it was purposeful and necessary and all that good stuff. Um, 
And the thought of like having a girlfriend or engaging in a premarital relationship was completely foreign to me. Uh, but once I got married and then I got comfortable interacting with with my wife and basically I noticed that I became a lot more comfortable with just females in general. And I was telling my friend that it's a lot easier to have sex outside of marriage once you're married because now you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, and he was like, dude, I never thought about that. I was like, yeah, like think about it because when you're – if you're a 22-year-old virgin – let's say you're on, you're, on college, you're, on college, you're a college senior and you're 22 or 23 – most likely the women around you are going to be already um they're you know they're going to be experienced and if you're going to try to like you're not going to like just fall into that kind of like a one night stand or a fling with somebody cuz you don't even know what to do you don't have game you don't know any of that stuff yeah <laughs> you know who this also holds true for is guys who have girls many many girls as their siblings and they know the ins and outs of how to interact with girls and they know what makes them tick and I've noticed that, at least from friends and uh, co-workers and whatever, that the guys who have a lot of girls as their, si- as their siblings, they, they really know how to, how to talk to women. Maybe. Not all. Not yeah. all. I wouldn't say that that's true of all guys, siblings, or well, women. Sure. But what are your thoughts on that? Like, you know, it's actually, like, it's easier and more practical for a guy, a married man, I think, to have an illicit sexual relationship than, like, like a 20-year-old single guy in, in some cases? I mean, I think there's merit to what you're saying um, for the reasons that you mentioned. I also think um, for a lot of the men that I have seen and, and talked to who are married and struggle with this, it's infidelity is oftentimes, um, it occurs because there is an expectation before marriage and that expectation is not met during marriage and they feel crushed or disappointed and at that point they sort of throw in the towel and say whatever I'm I'm just gonna live my life Um, again this is not speaking of every single case out there but I've seen it a couple of times and found it to be quite a phenomenon Um, and then going through my own experience I now understand where that expectation was coming from and why it was coming um, why it was brought into the marriage Unfortunately, even when the infidelity occurs, there's still this insatiable thirst for something that they cannot quench. Um, And it becomes very self-destructive. There's a lot of self-loathing that takes place and it eventually becomes an addiction because you're looking for quick satisfaction and you get it and then you feel horrible about yourself and there's guilt involved and then, you know, you're aroused again at another point or you need to self-soothe in some way and it's just a vicious cycle. It just keeps happening over and over and over again. As a female, do you think the same phenomenon exists from like from the woman's side? I don't have any friends or people who I know of personally where women have uh, been the culprits of infidelity. I'm sure it does occur for sure. Um, but I, I can't really speak to it because I honestly have not I haven't experienced it. I don't really know. Sure. So while we're on the subject of infidelity, um, we had a recent podcast uh, called The Dog Pound a few shows ago mm-hmm. regarding it, it was supposed to be like a tough seer of Mona Heider's uh, rap video called Dog. But uh, the whole subject matter was regarding the infidelity of, um, you know, imams and scholars in the Muslim community basically having flings with 
you know, women in the Muslim community. And we weren't saying it's zina necessarily, but stuff that shouldn't be happening, so to speak. So we did a podcast about it. Um, we And we got a lot of flack in the sense of, you know, because like one of the comments I would I, I made, I, I was speaking to um, one of the uh, well-known Mashiach in America um, mm-hmm. who's aware of the problem. And I told him, like, listen, um, you know, obviously, if, you know, this was a case of sexual assault, they should be going to the authorities and let the law handle it. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It, it, these aren't. So there's there's some kind of consensual relationship here. Right. And, you know, so it takes two to tango. Why are these? How come no one is speaking about, you know, these women should be held accountable at some level as well, while we're also holding these imams and mashaikh accountable? And he said, listen, there's a power dynamic here. Um, what if you're like a 20-year-old and you sign up for an intensive and, you know, this imam or scholar that you already look up to messages you and say, hey, we have an inner circle study group. And he kind of gets his way and is like, wouldn't you say that's predatory? And I'm like, yeah, I, I-, I could see that. I-, I-, I could definitely see that. But at the same time, she did have to say yes. I mean, we're not talking about – if she says – I mean, if she says no at any point in – any time in this scenario there's assault there right so she said no she said yes she went along with it and then maybe later she's like oh crap or she finds out he's doing with everybody else maybe she thinks that oh i'm his like one you know he really loves me or whatever i don't know what's going on but at some point she has some regret she leaks it out she tells people that like this is what he did yada 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 and now the dude's getting busted um because for us to you know bring that viewpoint up we got a lot of flack um Mm -hmm. Um, and the then people were like, you guys getting a woman's perspective on it. So I, I wanted to get your take on that. I don't know how privy you are to these kind of scenarios or how aware you are, but uh, based upon what I just described. And the funny thing is, is that the the video doesn't talk about anyone specifically. So who? I mean, it's is it a straw man that 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 the video is addressing? Like you you're you as a listener are wondering, okay. How many cases of these are existing in the United States? You know, and who are, who are we talking about here? I'm getting messages from all over the world saying, saying what's going on in America? Like, mm-hmm. who are who are these videos and these uh, posts, uh, Facebook posts addressing, you know? Mm-hmm. Total, like, just side joke. I think between the both of our podcasts, probably the amount of messages we get from people out in like Indonesia, Malaysia, Pakistan, et cetera, wondering what the hell is going on in the West. They must be terrified, absolutely terrified. Um, So a couple of things. You you mentioned that your listeners said you really need to get a woman's take on this. I'm probably the worst female you could have brought onto the show to talk about this because I'm probably not going to say what those people want. And that's exactly why we brought you on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You exposed our secret plan. I I also, like many women, I'm sure, many Muslim women, I get inboxed in private messages from shiuch as well, or so-called shiuch, right? Sometimes they're inappropriate, sometimes they're not. I could care less what your title is, where you did your studies, if you're a leader in the community or not. You're a human being. We are all accountable for our actions in front of Allah. And so, yes, there is a power dynamic there whereby a young, vulnerable woman may be, you know, under the 
whims of a scholar who is older than her. But at the end of the day, are we not all accountable for our decisions and our choices, irrespective of power plays and context? We will all be held accountable for the decisions that we make. The sheikh is wrong, as is she. And it's not to say that she wasn't preyed on. She absolutely was. And that onus is on him. But she also made a choice. She also made a decision. So I think... Do you, do you think prey is a strong word, though? Because I, I feel like it's not used when uh, college professors have relationships with their s- adult students um, in, in many They're universities around the country. Is, is, are they pre- predators as well? I would use the same word there as well. Mm-hmm. And it, the same thing with, you know, a boss in the workplace who's, uh, you know, hitting on his employee. It's the same situation. There is a power struggle there whereby, you know, there there's a ladder of authority that we can't ignore. But at the same time, you do have every option to remove yourself from that situation. You, you yeah. like you, you can't ignore that fact. It's an unfortunate situation to be in, but you're not completely helpless. And victimization and victimhood is a huge proponent of American culture. We were very quick to victimize ourselves about anything and everything. And the last thing we do is hold ourselves accountable to the choices and decisions that we make when it really should be the first thing that we're doing. Um, recognizing the power that we do have in any given context and acting on that power and, you know, utilizing our agency. Um but, you know, we're, we're talking also about a bigger issue in the quote-unquote woke millennial Muslim sort of uh, community. And it's part of the reason why I also pulled the plug on the Between Arabs project. I don't know if you guys want to go there. Or yeah. yeah, I do. I, I really want to know because I was a fan of that. So. Sure. He's, he's pouting right now, by the yeah. way, when he said that. <laughs> you can't see it. Well, technically she's a free agent, so we'll talk after the show. So uh, towards the tail end of, you know, when the project existed, there there was a lot of pressure and an expectation for between Arabs to become another proponent of liberal secular secularism and a kind of reformist Islam. Um, And by that, I'm talking about, you know, Muslims on the scene right now who also happen to be the ones holding the mics who advocate for a very watered-down, pandering to Western ideologies kind of Islam, whether it's your hijab fashionistas who, you know, reveal half their hair, or you're talking about um, folks who blindly follow the um, BLM movement without really understanding the full context of that movement, Um, or you're talking about folks like the ones you had on your, you know, podcast not too, too long ago, the um, editors of the book Love Inshallah. Yeah. Um, And this is where I get a lot of flack because now I'm being held accountable uh, as a Western-bred Muslim to use the same kind of language that we use in the United States, which is, you know, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, why does what I do and what I say affect you? Which is, honestly, it's bullshit excuse my language, because we know that we don't live in vacuums. What we say and do in the public affects us on micro and macro levels. So, you know, I sat down one time with Amani Al-Khattabi, who is the founder of Muslim Girl. Um, And we were having a chat about, you know, her work. And um, this is before I started my podcast. I was interested in writing for um, 
uh, her, her blog. And as I sat down and, and had this conversation with her, I realized, wow, we are using the same words, but we're not on the same page. She was talking about really fighting for exposure of issues that we don't talk about in our community. I was saying the same thing. And then the example she was giving me, I thought to myself, well, the taboo you're talking about, the taboo that you want to advocate for is the very thing that I'm saying is wrong. So are we saying that, you know, um, it's okay for Muslim women to date before marriage because the boys are being allowed to date? Or are we saying that it's haram for both of them to date because it's haram? Um, and we just were not speaking the same language. Um, I also engaged a couple of times with um, Janan Matari, who is the founder of Miss Muslim on Facebook. And she's a staunch feminist. I'm not. And we just went at it one day um, on, on Facebook. And I realized once again, like I'm being sucked into this uh, space where I'm sort of seen as a an interlocutor of these millennial Muslim women. And my work does not align with their work whatsoever. Um, and I was finding that the people who wanted to write for the Between Arabs Project were seeing the Between Arabs Project as another version of Miss Muslim and Muslim Girl and The Tempest and that sort of thing. Um, and it was never intended to be a platform where we try to, quote, redefine Islam. That was never the agenda. And it was steadily starting to take that form. So rather than just keeping an open space for dialogue, it ended up being another uh, blog where we were pushing for reformist Islam. And that that was not something that I, in my heart of hearts, could continue to do. Um, so so that's really the... But weren't the you thing. the ultimate editor, though, or no? I was, yeah. But, you know, I also, I don't capitalize. I didn't capitalize on the Between Arabs project. It wasn't a job. So I had a team working with me. And we were starting not to see eye to eye. Oh, okay, um, that makes sense. So, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. That I mean, when when you are, you you have a different vision, and you have a lot of people who are interested, and just like how you said when you were sitting with uh, Amani and talking to her, there you're you think that you're aligned, but mm -hmm. there the end goal is something else. So exactly. that's something we've learned about ourselves, I think, in the last year and a half of recording. No, I, I almost want to take it back to remember we went to Iman a couple of year ago and we uh, so Sim and I met Linda Sarsour um, and mm -hmm. we talked to her for a brief minute. And, you know, we, we invited her to come on the show. We followed up, um, but she, she, she's busy. She we weren't able to make a time for it. Um, and uh, the thing about it was later we, re we were like we then we saw the whole. Um, stuff with you know aligning with certain groups that necessarily we're not necessarily down with all that kind of stuff we're like you know what i don't know that she's really our cup of tea though yeah you yeah. know and that's, i think that's what i was talking about like we were like pretty open we're i mean and we're always trying to say listen if you can have and we had a similar conversation with amani as well because we didn't know yeah at that point more it, it was to her. me and mort were yeah at at it's not and we talked to her and we felt like oh, okay well she would be someone interesting and uh, because i had never read the muslim girl um you know i didn't really sit down and you know dissect every article they had i just you know knew about it through my wife and who looked at it every once in a while so i'm like oh, okay well you know they're working for islam i we're still you know we're removed from the muslim community uh for 
four or five years before we started this podcast in, in terms of how much uh, involved we were. And mm-hmm. we didn't know all these different personalities on Facebook and in social media. So we're trying to figure all these personalities out who really, for all intents and purposes, they consider themselves celebrities because they have 20, 30,000 followers on, on Twitter. So we're, 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 we're like, okay, cool. Let's, you know, uh, let's deal them, give them the, the respect that they're due and uh, yeah. let's uh, invite them on the show. And then as we start researching yeah. them, it was a whole nother world that's going on. And we're thinking, whoa, there's all these other undercurrents of mm-hmm. uh, other agendas that are kind of manifesting themselves through these works. And, and we're not opposed to having these people on. The thing is, though, our experience has been that they generally shy away from that kind of open dialogue, to be honest. Yeah, I was just going to say that, um, that you actually want these folks on your show, right? And I, and I had the same approach, too, that you actually want to engage in dialogue with the people in your community that you don't see eye to eye with. That's the purpose of this kind of um, discussion. But as time passed, I realized we're not being intellectually honest in these conversations. We're not actually um, putting our our best foot forward, so to speak, in trying to get to the root of things. And whenever it would become clear that, you know, whatever I'm advocating for, they realize that they're kind of stuck and they don't have a convincing or compelling response. It becomes, you know, uh, a dead end. And it's just like, well, how dare you? Or this is my truth. Or, you know, these, these phrases that pretty much absolve them of responsibility in the debate. Am I making sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The, the thing is this. Um, Muslim as an identity right now in the West, it is a commodity. It is um, something that folks are capitalizing on. Both self-identifying Muslims and non-Muslims are capitalizing on not just what it means to be a Muslim, but especially what it means to be a Muslim hijabi, right? Um Muslim progressives and reformers and liberals and the quote unquote woke folk who, you know, walk around like they have the answers to society's biggest problems are actually not making things better for Muslims in America or in the West to speak more broadly. And to me, it just seems increasingly clear that their definitions and their understandings of truth and justice and righteousness align more with secular liberalism than with Islam, even though they self-identify as Muslims. So... It's, I think, important whenever having conversations with folks who identify as feminists or as um, uh, reformers or progressives or liberals, or if they don't use these labels, if they align with certain movements and uh, agendas that don't align with Islam, you've got to start the conversation there. Because otherwise, at some point during the discussion, you're going to be using the same language and you're not getting to the same uh, destination. So it's it's a struggle and it's something that I personally am concerned about as a millennial myself and as somebody who has a niece and three nephews and, you know, hopefully one day, inshallah, I'll have my own kids. You think about the future and sort of the shape that being a Muslim in America is starting to take. It's not really Islam. It's not the Islam that I think a lot of folks in the community who want to do this work authentically are trying to advocate for. And rather than focusing on the external forces that have always oppressed us, we're now battling ourselves because there are two camps within our community, um, you know, to use this kind of binary that we're, we're talking at each other. So 
we're, we're too busy doing that instead of actually dealing with the forces, the Islamophobic and Islam racist forces that are stripping us of our civil and, and human rights in the United States. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great summary there. Um, so I want to talk to you before we wrap up here about your own spiritual, spiritual journey, which I think is, seems like still in progress, you know, for all of us still in progress. But for you, it's like for us who have been following the Between Arabs project and like kind of seeing you over the past year, I mean, the most visible thing is a year ago when you had Daniel and Nabil on your show, we were always like, I think Sim and I were always like really surprised. We were like, yeah, she looks like your average modern, like, yeah. you know, modernist, you know, Muslim girl, Muslim lady doesn't wear hijab, etc. But she's really like, you know, she, she's, she, she's hardcore without looking like she's hardcore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's, that's, that's a good way to put it. Like, she's about seeking that truth. She's not about, she's not like, like I tell people, like my own perspective on Islam and how I approach like shari- the, sh- the Sharia and fiqh and everything is that listen, there's a lot of opinions that I believe are the strong are the correct opinions that I just don't follow because of the weakness of my own nafs, right? And I got that yeah. vibe from you. And people are just so scared. People want to justify everything. They they want to make it sound like listen, man. Human beings aren't sinless. Like we're not supposed to be. Like just mm-hmm. own up and just say you're not ma- you're not matching up right now. And Allah will you know ask Allah to help you, right? Um, but I, like, just talk a bit, talk a little bit about your own progression in the last year, because like you recently started wearing a hijab. Um, how's how's that? Is that the first time in your life you've worn hijab? Yeah. Mashallah. Yep. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. How, well, what are your so, experiences uh, in terms of just that that change in ter- in terms of how the community is looking at you now? So generally, the reception has been positive. Um, at work, it's been a lot of curiosity but generally you know people are respectful and um the muslims in my community and in my life are uh accepting obviously and supportive the folks who have given me grief and it hasn't been a lot but they are the reformist muslims um the ones who say like you know honestly i had to block people after um i the hijab on because these are people who are following the between arabs project and were diehard feminists and were so upset that i decided to wear the hijab and would send me messages like you know you're a leader in the community what kind of example are you setting by saying that the hijab is a mandatory tenet of our our faith etc and you know would give me these ongoing lectures about how it's not actually a requirement um but other than that it's been great alhamdulillah and um I just feel so blessed that it has been as easy as it's been. I wasn't expecting it to be this easy. I was ready to go in and, you know, just have to deal with the uh, ignorance. But it's been it's been wonderful. And the timing, I think, for me was perfect uh, because it came from me wholly. And it came at a time in my life where I felt like the internal struggles that I had been going through were finally sort of silenced and I could really just express on the outside what had been going on on the inside because as you mentioned you know a year ago I wasn't wearing hijab and oftentimes I don't even pass as an Arab people think I'm Jewish or Greek or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, so the privilege that comes with being white passing was something that I was very aware of and Hopefully I did a good job of not exploiting it, but I'm human and I'm sure that I did from time to time. But there was this feeling of dis, just incongruence, you know, this cognitive dissonance within myself where on the inside I felt like I was, 
you know, more Muslim than I was showing on the outside. Um, and it's like you said, Mahin, like the minute you decide that this is what you believe in, just you own the obligations that you have as a Muslim, male or female. And if it's not something that you're living in your lifestyle, then don't try to make excuses for it. Own up to the fact that you're just not there yet. And that's the struggle that I see a lot of people in our community going through, where rather than doing the heavy lifting of self-reflection and saying, you know, yes, hijab is a part of Islam. It is something that um, I know I need to be doing, but I'm just not there yet. We'll come up with a million and one excuses and explanations for why the hijab is not required. Um, and it's 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 sad. It's really sad. It breaks my heart, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, I mean, just being a, a dad of three daughters, I know it's not easy. Look, uh, I know well, <laughs> this something funny happened over the last Eid break, and I went uh, I went to pick up donuts after uh, Eid prayer, and was at a bakery, and I'm wearing the full, you know, thobe, and I even wore, uh, you know, that uh, Arabic hatta around mm-hmm. my head. And I was like, oh, man, it's going to be a line full of white people. And all of a sudden, this guy who looks like a terrorist is going to be walking into that line. And I'm like, uh, I kind of nudged to my wife. I'm like, hey, why don't you go inside? Uh, she's like, no, <laughs> get out there and go. And she's and I'm like, damn it. Welcome to our world. And, uh, and yes. I, I step out. So there's look, there's no way i'm ever gonna say that it's easy to wear the hijab and but i'm i'm always in admiration of all sisters who go out there every day in professional workplaces and and deal with people's stereotypes and uh, the various faces that people make throughout their day and the coming home and then dealing with the challenges that take place at, at home as well so uh, i'm always in admiration of, of all of all of our sisters in that respect. I also just want to say one thing about that. You know, I hear the argument that parents will encourage their daughters to not wear or to remove the hijab for safety reasons in this country. Do incidents happen? Of course we do. Are they happening more often than not? No, they're not. There are hundreds of thousands of women in the United States alone who wear the hijab and don't get attacked verbally, physically, and are actually very supported. The instances in which those cases do occur are far and few between, and of course, that's what's exploited in our media. So, you know, for anyone who's listening, who's considering wearing the hijab or is considering taking it off because of the safety issue, really just be critical in what you're seeing and hearing. I mean, I work on the Upper West Side in New York, which is a very Jewish community. I my school is in a temple, okay, and these people are so supportive. And they're so respectful and tolerant of the fact that I wear the hijab. These are (laughs) people are not as evil as we make them out to be in the media. So be very careful when you, you know, go off on one end and think that the world is so severe and harsh. It's not like that. Yeah, sure. So, Noor, uh, as we wrap up here, what's do you have any parting advice for people who are on their, you know, you know, going through this growth right now, maybe it have come through a, a point in their life where they were doubting Islam and or even or even left the faith like you did. Do you have any parting word of advice for how they should go about or what's worked for you? Shut out all the noise that's around you. The even even the well-intentioned voices, especially, you know, family, some 
that one cannot come from your family members because we know we don't listen to our families, right? It's got to come from a stranger. Um, shut out the noise and just open up your mind a little bit and just let things take its course. And if you genuinely want the truth, then you have to make dot for it and it will come. Okay, cool. And do you have a, do you have a minute for one more quick question? It's a really simple sure. one. Uh, is it offensive uh, for me to say chick? <laughs> you're asking the wrong female these questions <laughs> I, I will give you two answers it's not offensive to me but it's offensive to every other woman probably on the planet so okay i i do a test sometimes I, I thought about using it on you but like i was at a barbecue like a month ago and i i, I say it very casually like i don't i'm not even thinking about it it's just like my normal course of conversation and i uh, I, I said, I was like, yeah, he, that dude over there, he just hangs out with chicks. He's just kicking it with chicks. And um, the uh, my friend's wife was across from me, and she's normally someone on Facebook who has this very feminist tone to whatever. Yeah. And I just, and I realized, like, she was like, I was talking to her when I said it. And uh -huh. um, she didn't say anything. And, and, and I was like, you know what? It's not offensive. Because if it was, you know, she would have called me out right then. But, like, when, when I ask them the question theoretically later, they're like, yeah, it's offensive. But when I actually use it, you know, if someone dropped the N-word, for example, then you would get I, caught I, right away. I think it's one of those terms that uh, Rogan calls or they're called micro-triggers. <laughs> micro-triggers. <laughs> micro-triggering when, like, when you hope, oh, hold the door open for a woman because... <laughs> I guess for, for the fem from the feminist narrative is that they can't hope they can't open the door themselves. So yeah, yeah. That's... and these are the same people who later on in life are so frustrated by everything. Yeah, you know, um, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, and at the end of the day, trying to police semantics and language is a moot point, and it's a dead end. You know, uh, project. You might as well not. So it, I, I don't really care. Yeah. One, one more last uh, parting advice from you. I, I always, uh, we always like to get some life hacks and stuff from our guests. <laughs> so um, how, how did you get yourself to become so eloquent and, um, you know, so well-spoken? Read, people. People don't read anymore. This is the problem. You know, I'm an English teacher, right? I, I was a, a classroom English teacher for eight years before I went into school administration. And um, in my first year of teaching, mashallah, my students, alhamdulillah, they went from being in the 30th percentile in the city to being in the 90th. And my assistant principal dragged me into a meeting one day and she's like, what did you do? I said, read, get them to read. If you yeah. want to be able to speak and write well, you've got to read. That is the answer. There's there's nothing else that you need to do. Just read. And read read from intelligent authors, right? Not like Reddit. Okay. <laughs> consider that consider that you're reading for the for the day. No, for me it's like ESPN.com. For me it's Reddit, man. <laughs> it's I, like other people who can't write. I love snarky comments and those those comments are gold. <laughs> yeah, like say Reddit is really good entertainment, but uh, you know, Study the greats before you hit up Reddit. Right, yeah. right. Is there any way people can engage you right now on social media, or are you kind of like off the grid? No, I mean, I'm still on Facebook and Instagram. Um, my Facebook actually is in Arabic characters, so you're, you'd have to search me that way. Um, <laughs> and my Instagram is norm.goda417. Cool. 
Very good. Well, Noor, Jazakallah for coming on. Uh, we'd love to have you again yeah. sometime in the uh, near future. I think there's a lot of topics we can cover with you. Uh, partially, one of the things is like that we talk about triggering and man, all these words. We didn't talk about mansplaining, but like semantics. How like five, ten years ago, we never talked about these issues. Yeah. Like these, this ver- this vocabulary is just like all new, you yeah. know. So. It's definitely some. Uh, it's not new. It's new to the Muslim community. Oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. You know, policing. Yeah. Policing language has been a part of uh, Western philosophy for a very long time. You know, this is what academics do, sociologists and social uh, theorists. This is what they do. That's where we get these words from. I gotcha. Cool. cool. Right. Um, please don't hang up after the. Sure. The outro. Sure. All right. For our listeners out there, you can re- if you can find us and reach out to us at the Mad Mamluks at gmail.com. You can follow our Facebook page, log us on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Um, give us a five star review on iTunes. And actually, it's like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. I always get that flipped. But for our special guest, Noor Jode, and for my co host, Sim, this is Mahin signing off for the Mad Mamluks. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.